This is The Shift Podcast. The Shift Daily Podcast. Sylvain Charlebois joins us. He's a food policy researcher and columnist breaking down why Canada's butter is hard and what it has to do with the dairy industry. Are you okay with being married to yourself? Or what about Dr. Seuss? Are you okay with his books? Greg Fish, World of Weird Things. We talk about space and how humans could come from Mars, like literally Martians. And Sir Christopher Gilbert joins us from Tokyo to talk about some wacky stories from all over the globe, including frogs in Japan that sound like dogs. All of this and more on the Shift Daily Podcast. It's amazing what uh, people talk about butter. Last week on the shift, we found out the uh, the arm wrestling match that is butter versus margarine. Uh, well, we started talking about this buttergate conversation about hard butter, and people are people get upset. People get upset when you challenge butter, when you challenge margarine. It's it was the most mind blowing moment for me in quite a while here on the shift. Sylvain Charlebois joins us now. Um, he's with Dalhousie, and uh, he's a food guy. Knows all the thing food. Not not only not only all the things food, but food chain, food markets. Uh, Sylvain is the guy who tells us what food prices are probably going to do. Him and his colleagues. So how are we doing on food prices, by the way, Sylvain? Are we on track to what the guesses were for 2021? Pretty much. And we're wondering if we were off uh, on the low end of things, Uh-oh. actually. Because uh, if you look at... Uh, international markets, commodity prices are going to go up. So the good news is that I actually think that farmers are going to have a really uh, great year. Uh, the problem is when farmers have a good year, eventually it catches up, it catches up to us. And uh, we're going to have to pay a little bit more. I just don't know when it's going to hit us. Uh, it may actually hit us at the in the fall or in the winter. But um, our, our, our forecast was three to five. Uh, my guess is probably going to be close to five. And uh, I mean, Bloomberg actually uh, uh, targeted Canada as one country where uh, the food inflation rate would be much higher than the general inflation rate, unfortunately. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, two good years for farmers, not a bad thing for the farmers, because there's been an awful long list of bad years, too. So uh, not a lot to complain about there when we start to see the sunshine on some of the farmers, things that are going on. Now, this is not about farmers here so much, but we were talking about all of this butter stuff. And in that conversation came up palm oil. And I think an awful lot of people listening to this, myself included, sort of looked at that and went, palm oil? What the heck is palm oil? And why is it in the food? Like, we, people don't even know what it is. So now, you're not like a palm oil expert, but it, it doesn't come as the cleanest source of nutrition for everybody. What can you tell us about this, Sylvain, and uh, maybe how it affects what the cows are getting fed? Yeah, I mean, there, there are reasons why many consumers uh, – ban palm oil from their diets it, it it does come with a lot of baggage especially environmentally uh, there's been a lot of stories about uh, deforestation uh, it has really um, uh, it made actually some species endangered like the orangutan the orangutan is really the symbol here uh, and a lot of people have a problem with that it is the most popular vegetable oil in the world it's pretty cheap uh, it's pretty cheap to make because Governments actually control the production, and uh, and they they do generate a lot of revenues, uh, but they don't really take into account uh, sustainable development. Uh, there's not a whole lot of resource natural resource management practices going on in some of the some parts of the world, especially in Asia, and 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 we often uh, talked about uh, what was going on in in Brazil as well. So we procure. Um, a byproduct of palm oil it comes from the same plant i mean it's it's you can call it byproduct or not farmers actually call it byproduct but it doesn't it doesn't really make it less worse it's just it's just palm oil and so we import these products from abroad to uh to be used as energy supplements uh in in the dairy sector and and my my guess is that a lot of people just didn't know about it so palm oil palm is it's like a palm tree 
it's, it's kind of like not like a big, beautiful palm tree like you see when you go on vacation. It's kind of more of a bushier. It's like the the that's ugly right. ugly relative, the the one, the short <laughs> one that's bushier and not as pretty. That's right. And in order, my yeah. understanding is, in order to get the palm oil, they basically kill the tree. Um, yeah, and, exactly. And, and then you extract the oil, and uh, there are several byproducts you can actually manufacture as a result of, of that. Uh, I'm not an expert in, in, in palm oil per se, but for the dairy sector, I mean, palm oil is used in many different products because it actually uh, adds flavor. Uh, the texture part is probably the most critical thing that the the, the attributes of palm oil really allows the products to be uh, to be softer. Uh, like Nutella is a perfect example uh, of of a product uh, which benefits from the use of palm oil. It's 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 much easier to spread. It doesn't really uh, melt uh, at room temperature. You would have to eat it up a little bit. Uh, the the fusion point uh, for products that do contain Nutella or uh, palm oil is typically higher. And this is why the, the, there's been there's been a lot of discussion around palm oil or palmatic acids uh, and uh, and butter uh, because the, the whole issue of butter is that people uh, feel that it doesn't really melt or it doesn't soften at room temperature. Uh, the textures change, and so so a lot of people are correlating uh, palmatic acids with butter. But still, there's there's no proof that. That is the case, but a lot of people. In fact, we actually ran a survey over the weekend, and I, it's unpublished. I can tell you, forty-three point one percent of Canadians. We actually surveyed eight thousand seven hundred four Canadians. Wow, forty-three point one percent of Canadians have actually noticed that their um, butter uh, is uh, doesn't soften at room temperature. And of the 43.1%, 76.2% has never heard of Buttergate. So when we asked them, they weren't necessarily predisposed to think about butter. And so you can feel it. So something's wrong. Like something is going on in the market. Uh, it was denied by the Dairy Farmers of Canada, but the, the British Columbia Dairy Marketing Board issued a memo in October about non-foaming and some issues with butter. So the dairy industry knew about this for a very long time, since probably my guess would be a, since at least August of 2020. Hmm. So yeah. do we know, and I don't even, if you don't know the answer, that's that's fine too, but do we know is palm oil an ingredient in butter now? Because there has been also an awful lot of talk about palm being uh, included in feed and getting into well, the, the butter that way. So to be clear here in dairy, we don't add uh, uh, palmite to the finished product. We actually use palmite to feed animals. Okay, good. And, and the reason why we do that. Uh, is to increase the butterfat content content in milk, because hmm. in, in in the supply management program we have in Canada, the money is not necessarily in fluid milk; it's in butter fat. But when you actually use palmite when feeding animals, you are likely going to increase the content of saturated fats, which means that your fusion point, the fusion point of a finished product, is likely to go up. If you feed an animal with one ingredient, you're likely going to end up seeing that ingredient into the finished product. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to label it. So if you go to the store and uh, and look for butter, find butter, you're not going to see palm oil or palmatic acids on the label because you don't have to label what what you're feeding your animal with. Right. Well, that makes sense. So, I mean, because you're not adding it to the butter, which I That's find, right. you know, at least for that part, I find that part somewhat comforting that it's not being added in and people don't know about it at least directly. So no, no exactly. So uh, yeah, I think there was, uh, I mean, yes, last week was pretty intense. A lot of things were going on and I think there was, there was a lot of confusion around that, but uh, yeah, the, the, the industry is not adding palm oil to the product. It's just being used. But when you understand the nature of supply management, it's a, there's a, there's a government sanctioned quota system uh, only the privileged few can produce butterfat and milk in Canada. Uh, these farms, these farmers are very rich. Uh, I mean, they have millions of dollars in assets. We protect them with high tariffs on imports. We compensate them even 
uh, almost $2 billion over the next three years. We pay more for butter than, say, the United States on average. Um, we've all agreed to this moral contract. In return, we were expecting, we are expecting quality. I think what really bothered a lot of people is, is to learn that the dairy industry, in order to produce more dairy fat, they actually import a product from, from halfway around the world while promoting a local and sustainable blue cow. That was the problem. Well, and then you get back into the bring it full circle, orangutans, deforestation, and all the other things that come with it. There's a story. And, and so, of course, a lot of people who are banning palm oil from their lives felt betrayed. I mean, you would see, I mean, with my op-ed in the Globe and Mail, you should have seen all the postings there, the comments. It was just a lot of people were angry. You know, they thought they were misled. Well, that, I, I kind of get why people would be misled when you're paying a premium for a product. And then the I, I'd read one article and this is just from recall, so I'm not going to quote it perfectly. But the farmer had said, if you get me another source of a feed that is as efficient as this and affordable like this, then I'll use it happily. Yeah. But then, so when you go and you say the, all the things that we, we, the conversation on dairy has always been, you know, fundamentally gets down to the price at the end of the line for the consumer. And when you're paying a premium for a product and then the complaint is, well, give me cheaper feed, it, that doesn't seem to, it doesn't fit, right? The puzzle pieces don't fit. Those are my words. But the puzzle pieces yeah. don't fit when you've got all of these subsidies, all of this protectionism that goes on in negotiations with trade around dairy. And then the argument is, well, make it cheaper so we make more money. It, it seems like it just the puzzle pieces don't fit for me. And maybe that's why people are just starting to get a little bit short-tempered with, with everything. When all they want to do is put the butter in the dish and leave it on the counter so it gets softer. Isn't that funny? Exactly. I think, I, I think really uh, Buttergate was, was years in the making because you, you are looking at an industry that is anything but transparent. Like, seriously – most people don't know what goes on uh, on farms. And I would argue that even the marketing board, the Dairy Farmers of Canada, don't know what's going on, on on farms. There's lots of things going on here. I actually do believe that the palm oil story is the tip of the iceberg. And that's the nature of the of the industry. Uh, they They say they're transparent, but I don't think they understand what it means, especially now in 2021 when some of the practices are questioned. Uh, just because you know people have moved on, the needle around sustainability has moved. The needle on ethics has moved. I mean, there's a lot of things that have, have happened, and farmers are out there uh, saying, "This is what what is going on. This is allowed. It's legal. We didn't do anything wrong. Uh, where's the science?" Here's the deal. This is this is the this is the worst part. I think is that they often claim, well, where's the science showing that butter has changed, and and the fact that that palm oil has changed the texture of the butter. Well, where's your science? I mean, yeah, lack butter of demand, lack of evidence, is not evidence up, right? Exactly, butter demand went up 26 percent in 2020, 26 percent in Canada. Okay, we barely added more cows to our national herd. Wow. So how do we do it? All of a sudden, that's the, the question I have yeah. to the dairy farmers again. How did we, how were we able to respond to this growth of twenty six percent while barely adding any cows to our herd? There's a lot of baking going on. <laughs> there was a lot of baking for sure. The pressure was on. They needed a quick solution in order to produce more butter fat. Just say it. Say it. Yeah. Say you did something. Maybe it's not palmite. Maybe it's something else. Just explain to the public what happened. How did you end up producing 26% more butter than last year with the same amount of cows? Just, just explain it. I would like to have an explanation. Yeah. Well, especially when you talk about food sustainability in general, people would like to know that that's even possible. When we look at yeah. all the things where Canada has not been self-sufficient, PPE, you know, vaccines, all the other topics around this where Canada has not been, if we are self-sufficient in certain areas, it sure would be nice to know what that is. I, I also look at a couple other things, though. There, I mean, there is transparency 
as a word is has been lost, right? Transparency has been taken by so many people in politics and marketing as, well, we share a little bit of info to appease you. It's not really transparency, right? Just because we're sharing right. some stuff. And transparency as a word well, has been lost in general, not just with dairy farmers. Oh, well, dairy farmers two weeks ago said uh, there is no problem with butter. A week later, they said, well, maybe there is a problem with butter and we'll actually strike a committee to look into it. And the week after, it was, let's ban this for a while. Wow. So you can see that there was, I mean, the, the organization was really uh, caught flat-footed. Uh, the pressure was so immense. I mean, this story actually went around the world. Uh, the, the dairy sector was embarrassed, still is embarrassed. And I think what what... But to me, what the biggest concern right now is that they are launching an investigation. But again, it goes back to how the inter, inter, uh, the industry operates. They're launching an investigation. Okay, the Dairy Farmers of Canada farmers are going to be inspecting or investigating farmers. Right. Well, that's so not can a, that, that's can not this investigation. The, that's a review. Can this end well? <laughs> is this transparency? Yeah. Well, and I guess perspective could say that transparency is that. You know, we believe there's nothing wrong with the butter. Therefore, we've shared that. And now we're transparent, right? Like that's, that's, you, you talk about the needle moving. I would suggest that transparency needle uh, has moved in one way in some areas and moved the other way, at least expectation in other areas. I just find it surprising that once the consumer commands, when you're in a, a retail consumer based industry, to push back when the consumer demands something seems backwards to me because they are the boss. The consumer is the boss. And well, I think what happens in big business today is to think that big business is the boss, which is not the case. The consumer is but, always the boss with the dollars. But I think Canadians underappreciate how supply management really doesn't get a dairy farmer to think about the market strategically. They just don't. They don't have to. They don't have to. I mean, they don't have to compete. They, they just... They're, they're public servants producing a public good, which is called milk. That's basically how it works. In America, when I was talking to the BBC or in Australia or NPR News or New York Times last week, I was explaining to them, yeah, but Canada's different. You know why it's different? Because consumers don't have a choice. On the supply side, it's homogeneous. It's the same product produced the same way. In America, if you want grass-fed, if you want organic, it's there. It's half price. It's competitive. Not here. You don't have a choice. So that, that moral contract, to me, was breached when people learn about the palm oil and and – because of that transparency, they, they, they failed to really nurture that contract they had with Canadians, as far as I'm concerned. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois with Dalhousie. This is my food guy. It's nice to see your face, brother. Nice to see you as well. This is The Shift Podcast. Matt, we had some questions about your Moondial. I don't know if you saw the text that came in. Oh, my. Um, but there was a text asking about, I'm curious as to what your moon dial looks like. That's a very loaded question, isn't it? Um, and that it was sort of like this glowing blue former alien thing orb that, um, that you had. Like, so can you describe the moon dial maybe? Uh, yeah, Roy, you're not too far off. Um, there is, um, like a, it has like a blue sort of light that just kind of emanates from it all the time. Um, the, the, the problem is, is I can't shut it off. Like it just keeps, mm. whoa, 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 whoa. it just keeps going like that. Ooh, that sounds very alien. Um, and, uh, yeah, the low humming sound, um, yeah, it's, it's always trying to dial in and trying to steal the Wi-Fi here at the uh, building. Because it, because it runs on Wi-Fi. Ever since we used Alexa, wasn't it? Alexa really screwed this up. Yeah, Matt, I'm glad you weren't there for that because I pretty much derailed the entire show uh, months ago. And uh, <laughs> it's been unplugged since I moved into my new place. And I don't know if I'll plug her back in. Well, wow. being a, the quintessential millennial here, Ryan thought, well, we don't need to. Matt was off. We don't need Matt and his old school moon dial, the alien orb. Um, Ryan's like, we can automate this. Let's use Alexa. One time she tried to hack the show. It's just the way yep. things go around here. She's been unplugged ever since. I guess so. I'll just never uh, go away then next time. <laughs> never. Ever <laughs> <Good> again. <plan. laughs> this is good. All right, let's check in with that uh, said very large, glowing, beautiful moon tonight, moon dial. Maddie. 
Yep, it's ready. There we go. Still glowing blue. Are you okay? Are you okay? We ask uh, questions and you get to tell us, are you okay with it? It's quite simple. Are you okay with monogamy? <laughs> Asking the married guy. Yeah, I I'm, guess I'm okay with it. Yeah. <laughs> Good answer, eh? Safe. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, as the unmarried man here, and the only one here who has not been married at any point, uh, definitely. I can't, Ouch. I can't wait to get married. Hey, it's, it's touches it, you know, it's happened to pretty much 50% of the people on earth. So, you know, you're not alone in this. Uh, I can't wait to get married one day. Uh, yeah, ever since I was a kid. I mean, I'm excited about it. Whenever that might be, I'm ready. Let's do it. Yeah, that's it. Wow. Right hey, on. That's eager. Right on, oh, dude. Yeah, I'm eager. Yeah, let's I'm, I'm it a down. big fan. I'm a big fan of what is marriage and the commitment to another human. I'm a big fan of that. So uh, even though for me, <laughs> it wasn't a thing, 100% of the people that um, get divorced get divorced, just so you know. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we're all about stats on this show. <laughs> that's a, oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's that's not a stat that one can dispute, I guess. Right? Sometimes you just got to know how to argue. That's all. Okay. Are you okay with monogamy? A woman in Atlanta is very okay with it. She's married to herself. <laughs> Life and business coach Meg Taylor Morrison, business coach. This is somebody you hire. Okay. Uh, Meg Taylor Morrison. Taylor Morrison, did she take her own other last name? Or was it, I don't know, never mind. Uh, she decided to spend over $1,000 on the ceremony after breaking up with her boyfriend. According to Morrison, it was a mutual breakup. Right. That's why you married yourself, in spite. <laughs> it was a mutual thing. Yeah. We're just going to be friends. I hate men. But the ceremony was just what she needed. Here is more from The Morning Show. So you... Then think, bearing in mind that this is, doesn't have any religious uh, connotations or it's not legal, obviously, uh, but, uh, but you decide to tell your family and your friends. Um, you, your mum was a bit unsure about this at first. She was. She was a little bit nervous that it might be seen as egotistical or that people would take it the wrong way. But we had a great conversation about it. And in the end, I said, you know, this is really my chance to put down people pleasing, to trust myself and what I want and what I see the difference this could make for me and even for other people who attend the wedding and who knows, maybe for some people watching the show. And once she got the idea of what it was, the, the meaning behind it, she really, she really came around, and she's my biggest supporter anyway. So I'm not surprised. So it's all about self help then, like feeling yeah. confident with yourself, so you marry yourself. Man, that's taking it to a a level. Cool. Uh, a level. It is taking it to a level. Uh, I would suggest that that was just a big waste of money, but whatever. Uh, you contribute eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight, and a few of you are in synchronicity with are you okay with monogamy for example rob says mahogany is awesome and Catherine says i love to work woodwork with mahogany <laughs> my apartment smells of rich mahogany i love that uh the ceremony itself was attended by tens of meg's closest friends and family nice <laughs> she walked down the aisle to a version of here comes the bride played on kazoos by her flower girls whilst uh her guests blew bubbles and drank champagne Meg then read out vows she had written, accepted her own wedding ring, and kissed herself in the mirror. And just just in case you missed it, um, in the very beginning of that story, it was a mutual breakup. <laughs> Do you think they see the irony though, like with the kazoos? That has to be like, you know, part of it. You know, kind of like a tongue in cheek thing. The kissing yourself in the mirror is like okay, you know. But hey. She feels more confident in herself, so. Well, Congrats. you know what? There, there's, there's something there. I think that you know it's great marketing, if nothing else. But um, at least with the, her amazing marketing, she can, uh, she's got the success that she wanted to get to. But hey, congratulations on marrying yourself. That's pretty awesome. So beautiful. 
Great song. Uh, there you go. I guess you could say Thanks, that, Mark. I guess you could say at the ceremony she was dancing with herself. Ah. <laughs> nice. So many ways we can go with this. Are you okay? Are you okay with Dr. Seuss? Yeah, I mean, like, uh, very beloved series of books enriched, you know, the childhoods of many, many people across mm -hmm. the world. Uh, one of our finest cultural products of the earth, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I am. National, yeah, right? National Reading Day is on his birthday. Uh, I've read Green Eggs and Ham and all those a million times. However, I will say the Cat in the Hat movie with Mike Myers is a two-hour-long fever dream. It is absurd, and you have to watch it. <laughs> That's a yeah. selling point. It is. Yeah. It's great. I wasn't sure if that was an endorsement or not, but okay. Uh, six Dr. Seuss books will no longer be published due to racist and insensitive imagery. The business behind publishing catalog said in a move that will affect such titles as If I Ran the Zoo and Scrambled Eggs Super, Dr. Seuss Enterprises, which manages his publishing catalog, says it made the move to protect and preserve the author's legacy. So it doesn't mean they're taking them away or anything else. They just say they're no longer going to be published. Here's more news from NBC4. Professor Philip Nell could be considered a Seussologist, well-known in academia and considered a go-to expert, a professor of literature at Kansas State University. He's been writing about racism in children's literature long before the publishers of Dr. Seuss pulled licensing and publishing for six of his books. Some of the most uh, egregious ones come in If I Ran the Zoo. Professor Nell knows that there will be a conflation and deflection, that there will be people who say pulling titles from a beloved master story teller is just going too far but he and others will challenge you to actually look at the content here's the african island of yurka and you can see the caricature of the two african men who i mean they're not only drawn in caricature but they're made to look a lot like the bird you know which which further makes a connection between them and animals the way asians are depicted in and to think i saw it on mulberry street the caricatures of middle easterners in scrambled eggs super and on Beyond Zebra, and Inuits in McGilligot's Pool, and Africans called Pygmies in the Cat's Quizzer. I think about how can children's literature tell children the truth? How can we raise a generation of kids who weren't brought up on the lies that I was brought up on, you know? So uh, this is interesting to me. Uh, normally, I, like cancel culture is a very scary thing. But I, I, this is interesting. So let me finish this first. Dr. Seuss uh, Enterprises says it conducted a review of his entire catalog last year. Over several months, teachers, academics, and specialists in the field contributed to the review, the company said. So they've gone out on their own and done this. And I think this is kind of cool because they're not changing Dr. Seuss. Like, Dr. Seuss was old, right? Like, he was, like, born in 1904. He wrote a lot of these books in the 20s and 30s, I think. Yep. So this is old, old, old perspective. The lens is old. And they're not, see, this is the part that I appreciate what they've done here, is they're taking a stand for these are these pieces are no longer relevant. We're not going to change them and pretend it didn't happen. We're just going to shelf them. And I think that if you're going to respect how life changes through the course of time, they're, that's what they're doing. It's kind of like the, you know, the the bad guy who was in a statue in front of the building, you know, maybe not appropriate anymore, put him in a museum, Right. They're not rewriting history here. They're just going to say it's no longer relevant. I think that's kind of cool. I think they've done a good job here. Gotta I think it's you. definitely the right way to go about it. And if you look at the actual depictions here, there are de there they definitely are racist. Absolutely, especially the mm -hmm. one of Asian people. It's 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 pretty. It's it was actually I've never read any of those books. When I saw the picture, it was very jarring to see that in a Dr. Seuss book. And mm -hmm. uh, I think you're right. Shelve it. And don't take away from the incredible library of books that are still there that yep. are not offensive, that are very constructive, especially for kids uh, that, you know, have touched so many of us. I think that's the thing. If they had tried to cancel Dr. Seuss, th that's where you would lose me. Uh, I think they did this the right way. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, put them in a museum and this is a snapshot of what it looked like and they're not changing it and pretending it didn't happen. This is the snapshot of what it looked like back then. And I think that's all you can do. I think that's the best you can do. And it also does maintain the integrity of the books he wrote back then. Um, 
Yeah, interesting. Are you okay? Let's do one more quick one here. Are I'm going to tell you what, Maddie, let's just play the clip here. Let's not do the bed. Let's just get right into the clip. See, that makes me feel good. Tight jeans on. Now we can go. Are you okay with dancing in the streets? Hell yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm I'm not really a dancer. I'm more of a hanging out, having a pint kind of guy. Nod your head in the back corner of the pub kind of thing? Yeah, watching the yeah. show with my arms crossed. Yeah. <laughs> Wallflower style. All right. Our uh, North Carolina woman is lucky to be alive after dancing in the streets. Here's more from ABC 11 News. We are learning more about that scary accident that happened early this morning on Newburn Avenue. Police say a passenger got out of a car at a traffic light to dance. When the light turned green, the person at the wheel drove off while the woman was still entangled in her seatbelt. Police say she wound up being dragged more than a thousand feet before the driver realized what happened. The victim was transported to Wake Med for treatment. Police do not think the driver was drinking or taking drugs and was driving the 35 35 miles per hour speed limit. Wow. How did you go that far? Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, without slowing down. (laughs) Good friend. It's the Shift Podcast. Okay, here we are. It is time to get weird, worldofweirdthings.com and Greg Fish. Welcome to the world of weird things with Greg Fish. What's up, Fish? How's it going? Uh, it's going very well, thank you. We did get a text message. Can we start with a text message on the uh, on the old segment today? Absolutely. Worldofweirdthings.com for his podcast and his articles. You can find everything Greg Fish there. Well, not everything. Trust me, you don't want to find everything. But most things Greg Fish there. Um, question for Mr. Fish. Text from Alberta says, If there is no oxygen in space and it takes oxygen to light a fire, how does the sun stay on? Well, it's not really on fire. It's plasma. So it's electrically charged gas that is so energetic that it's emitting light. All right. Simple answer. How about that? I didn't know that. I assumed it was a fireball. No, I mean, people like to say that it's a fireball because it really sounds dramatic and artistic, but no, not really. It's plasma. Actually, fun fact, uh, because plasma is not very dense, um, you can't actually have the kind of plasma weapons that they show in sci-fi. It would just not work because the density is so low, it would never transfer the heat or the energy. An actual plasma weapon would be more like a lightning bolt. That's something that's a little bit more realistic in quotes, like very heavy quotes on realistic there. Okay, so you're basically telling me that Ghostbusters is real? Yes, to an extent. I don't know about the ghosts, but the but but the guns are. The plasma streams? What about crossing streams? Because we were all of us, all men in no, the world don't have cross been told streams. all their lives. Don't, don't, cross, don't streams. cross streams. Don't cross all right. streams. <laughs> Greg Fish, worldofweirdthings.com. If that's not weird enough for you, how about some uh, new conversation about Martians? Um, where are we going today on uh, this? This is, a, this is a deep topic about Martians because we've been to Mars. Maybe it's our old neighborhood. Yeah, and... So we have a new rover on Mars. We have a helicopter on Mars, which is all very cool and very exciting. Always new science is is really interesting. However, because Mars is in the news a lot and reporters kind of need to jazz stuff up and get more clicks as people are looking at Mars, they're reviving an old theory that's been talked about a lot uh, that life on Earth actually originated on Mars. Okay. Is it a thing? Well, it is and it isn't. So let's back up for just a second and talk about what this theory actually is. The idea is that in space, there's a lot of organic materials that make up DNA and RNA, and there may be microbes and different little microorganisms that can survive 
a flight in space because they essentially go into hibernation. And then when there's water, when there's energy, they revive themselves. Uh, and we've actually done experiments with tardigrades, with certain bacteria, with certain worms, how well they do in space. Some have even survived entry into their atmosphere fully intact, which really kind of lends credence to an old theory called panspermia. And it's a really it's awkward wait, name. Whoa, 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 whoa. What's it called? It's called panspermia, which is a really awkward name for actually a very cool theory. It oh, don't God. don't go looking for it on Pornhub. It actually is a real scientific term. Uh, Do they and have an OnlyFans? Possibly everyone needs to have an OnlyFans now. I mean, it's it's tough out there for everybody. Uh, so, so back in the day. Earth was not considered old enough by scientists to have developed life on its own. So the idea was, well, maybe it arrived from somewhere else in space. And we have some evidence to suggest that there are a lot of chemicals and there's a lot of chemistry going on in space that is very conducive to life or living things or could deposit themselves on Earth or in any other environment that would be very conducive to life and develop into full-blown organisms, start evolving, and we can see entire ecosystems born from that. Now, now we know that the Earth was definitely old enough to develop life on its own, but the question still persists. Maybe there was some initial seeding of some very critical elements and maybe even some of the first microbes coming from outer space. And so some we know that we found some Martian meteorites on Earth that are billions and billions of years old. And we know that it's entirely possible for a piece of Mars to land to end up on Earth, and if that piece of Mars had some microbes inside and they could have survived on early Earth and they could have taken hold, then at least some life on Earth may have come from Mars. And that's essentially the idea that we are technically all Martians. How is it possible that a rock from Mars could just casually fly off? I mean, it's not like when someone leaves their coffee cup on top of their car and drives away. And then, or maybe it is. And then it just, I mean, mathematically speaking, the odds of hitting the pebble that far away, the little blue pebble and landing here and making it through the uh, ozone and not burning up on the way here. I mean, if you're going to win the, the bingo lottery, that's bingo. Yeah, I mean, the odds are literally astronomical, but we know that it has happened. And we know that it has happened because in the early solar system, there were a lot of collisions. So because there's a lot of collisions and a lot of big impactors are hitting planets all over the place, we have that those events that will generate those meteorites that could potentially travel as far as across planets. And it's entirely possible that there were impactors that hit Earth that ended up on Mars. So it's entirely possible that maybe early Earth also seeded Mars, but because Mars lost its atmosphere and became a very frigid, inhospitable desert on the surface, that life was completely snuffed out. So it's really interesting to think about, but you actually bring up a very important point when you talk about the odds of this. Where is the actual evidence that life was brought over? Because we haven't found life on Mars. We found conditions that we think may have been possible for some sorts of life to exist billions of years ago, but we have never found the smoking gun for that life having traveled anywhere. So the question is, how do we prove this theory? And one of the answers could be if we actually do manage to find fossilized life on Mars, like some sort of bacteria fossils or something of that nature, and we compare it to some of the earliest stromatolites and other bacteria that have been around on Earth for billions and billions of years, if there are very significant similarities in their chemistry, in their morphology, anything that we can detect, we could say, you know what, this is this is actually really interesting. This is worth investigating. But until we get that, this is just kind of a fun idea to think about. But it's important to think about because if you don't have these kind of crazy thoughts, well, what if, and then go out and you test them and you try and figure out if it actually happened or not, you're not going to get a lot of advances in science because that's really what science is. Science is asking, hey, what if this happened? And then going out, collecting evidence and trying to figure out, did this actually happen or are you barking up the wrong tree? And if you are, what's your next question? What's your next idea? Okay, so that, that kind of makes sense, the curiosity part, right? You've got to ask the questions about sort of what's possible here. 
So this cross-pollinating, if you will, of all kinds of things, do we have moon rocks on Earth that came from the moon from impact as well? I believe we do, yes. Hmm. Okay, have we seen any evidence of this on any other um, planets yet? I guess that this is really the only one that we've really been hanging out on, right? I don't think that we've examined other planets enough to know that. That's that's really what it comes down to. You need to like actually be on the planet and analyzing rocks and trying to see what rock, what rock may look weird or might have different chemistry. We just haven't been able to study it in that detail. You know, we just started landing on other planets. We're trying. We're start, We're starting to land on comets and asteroids. We're starting to ask these questions and we're starting to examine them in enough detail to get some answers. But we haven't really found a lot of conclusive evidence outside of the events that we know happened uh, between Earth and Mars back in the early days of the solar system. So I don't want to take us too much off topic here, but this is curious to me is that, you know, uh, landing on, uh, what do you say, uh, comets? Do you say mm-hmm. comets? Yeah. So landing things on there. Remember when, when the um, Perseverance was landing, they talked about that seven-minute window where we wouldn't, by the time we got the data, it would have already been there or not, right? Because yeah. that's the delay. So how is that, how is it even possible that we're landing on moving? Like we talk about Mars rocks making it to Earth and managing to make it all the way here. I realize gravity is probably a thing that's a little bit of a, of a helper, but how is it, um, how is it possible that we can really, with that seven minute delay, send things to land on moving rocks that I'm assuming are not moving very slowly? let alone on other planets. I mean, that technology is mind-blowing to me. Yeah, but the amazing part of it is that it's just all math. We, we figured out how to solve the equations, and when you solve for X, you can do some really amazing things. I mean, you know, uh, as a programmer, a lot of the stuff that I do, if you really get right down to it, is we've figured out how to turn math into things that are actually useful to us in ways that we've never conceived possible. The reason why we are talking to each other right now is because a bunch of nerds like me solved a lot of equations. That's really yeah. that's really what it comes down to. Math is math it. is almost magical. This is, this is a, a sales pitch sales pitch for math. I knew it. Trying and to this recruit. is how yeah, I mean I, I get a paycheck for big math every time I from big math every time I do this. And, and my math. wife teaches math, so I have to plug that too. Okay, so in uh, there's a great book called Humans. It's very similar about all about math. That math is it's a it's fiction, but it's a great uh, book if you like fiction and space and aliens about how math solves all the equations of all the questions about what is life. It's a good book, um, except for the love part. So here's a question then. So is this this where the starseed notion comes from? That we are all starseed. That comets and meteors and all these things basically barfed microbes on mars and earth and all through our solar system we just happened to take seed here and grew and then we've evolved into this like we've evolved into coffee and drive-throughs from that math sad isn't it uh but yeah that is exactly (laughs) where that that is exactly where that theory comes from and it's not just and again it's not just an empty notion we have a lot of evidence that this may very well have happened and maybe the microbes weren't there but amino acids were there uh, building blocks of DNA and RNA were there. Um, all you really needed was to have some sort of a sugar. In our case, it's deoxyribose and ribose that have taken that have taken some of these chemicals in and created the systems for heredity. It's entirely possible they can land on another planet, pick up another sugar or another couple of critical elements from the ecosystem, and off we go. You know, you have life just that simple i love how you just used that to solve the question of what is life like in five minutes i tried (laughs) so really i mean like is this a serious consideration this research and curiosity or is this a serious consideration about the beginnings of life this is a very serious consideration about the beginnings of life we really do want to understand how much of life occurs on a planet because the environment is conducive to it and how many building blocks come from different uh, different things in space, like comets and asteroids, uh, because we have found clouds of organic matter in early solar systems around other planets when we, sorry, around other stars when we study them. 
And the idea is if we can if we can understand this chemistry well enough, if we can understand these origins well enough, we could take a look at another star or at a planet orbiting another star and say with some degree of confidence how likely it is that there's life on that world. Now, the majority of life of that life is going to be microbial. Some of that life is just going to be like feral animals. But hopefully a tiny little percentage of it is going to be intelligent life. And ultimately really answers the question of are we alone in the universe and why are we here? And the answers that could be as simple as because it's possible and because there's so many places for this to happen that it's almost inevitable that we will have life in many, many, many locations. So actually funny enough, you have a lot of conspiracy theories out there saying that, you know, all these space agencies are denying that there's aliens out there and they're, they don't want us to find out about life. And if you actually look at what scientists and space agencies are studying, every other paper is how do we find life? How do we take all of this information about all these things that are possible for life to come from the stars how do we analyze this? What do we do with it? How do we use it to figure out what other things are out there? What other organisms might be out there evolving, waiting for us to find them? I guess it does not solve the question about where does life come from, though, really, because if it came in a cloud, a uh, a space fart, if you will, and landed in our solar system, that means that it had to come from somewhere. We just don't know where that is or, or how it started. So that still doesn't solve things like Big Bang and all those other questions, right? Oh, no. I, but we don't know whether we we'll actually will be able to solve Big Bang or some of these very core existential questions. But that's kind of the fun. You know, we're, we're going to try. Maybe we'll never solve it, but at least we'll try. And maybe we'll and maybe along the way, we'll find out some very interesting things because that has worked out for us so far. Why not keep going? I struggle with mathematicians being the um, the coolest cats in the in the universe solving the the answers. Um, I don't know why. <laughs> That's terrible. Maybe it's because I played Hangman through Math Thirty. Well, you know, math is math can be intimidating if it's taught the wrong way, and uh, you know, you don't you don't want to give the nerds the satisfaction of of being the coolest people in any environment. So I totally get it. Well, we um. I think what we can take away in this is if you listen carefully enough when someone has an idea or a curiosity or a theory, if you listen careful enough, you always hear the secret propaganda and agenda behind it. So if we're talking conspiracy theories, the conspiracy here to take with you is that math geeks are looking to take over the world. That's really it. I don't think that's a conspiracy. That's just a fact at this point. <laughs> it's ones and zeros uh, right here. So just to be clear, if you are interested in um, anything that Greg writes, worldofweirdthings.com, you can check it out. And um, Greg Fish is there. And if you are also familiar with John Gray, uh, men are from Mars, but women arrived on space dust from Venus here. We need to update the book now. I Math people sure just screwed up relationships, right? Math people just absolutely screwed up relationships for everybody, and we shouldn't be surprised that a math geek screwed up the relationship, should we? No, I mean, look at us. How You know the stereotypes. They have to come from somewhere. They have to come from somewhere. They do. Greg Fish, thank you very much, brother. Great to see your face. Always a pleasure. Greg Fish, worldofweirdthings.com. He joins us here on the radio on the Tuesdays. He'll be back next week as well. And to quote D. Wayne, so we're nothing more than just space sludge. Yeah, that's what Greg's saying. How's that make you feel? You're an oops. <laughs> Not because of tequila. This is the Shift Podcast. It is time for us to dive into the deep, hard-hitting news from around the world with Sir Christopher Gilbert. Welcome to the International Dispatch from our world citizen. Live from Japan, New Zealand's Chris Gilbert. He's the only world citizen. Uh, but here he is. Hello. Sir Christopher Gilbert, how Hi. are you? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm bloody gleeful this, um, this Japan Wednesday afternoon. I have good news. That sounds like you have good news, Sir Christopher. I have good news. And... Uh, my good news is that for the first time in 
six years, today I was reunited with about 43 to 50 of my friends who I left behind in New Zealand, which is my um, my record collection. My, my record collection arrived today. Oh. And, uh, oh, yeah. Look at the smile on Matt MacArthur's face right now. Um, yeah, so no, I, I, I got all of my records uh, that I started collecting when I was younger. I've been collecting since, but um, yeah, my, my initial collection of about 50, I left in New Zealand because I was like, oh, I'll come back. And uh, that never happened. Um, and then <laughs> on, my, <laughs> on my second time living in Japan, I realized I'm, I'm probably not going back to New Zealand anytime soon. I want my records. Um, so my friend uh, who had been caretaking them for me packed them all up, shipped them away, and they were here in a week. And um, I'm bloody stoked. To be honest, See, that's my good 50 news. Fifty records—that's not light. That's that's a heavy heavy package, buddy. It's uh, it was hefty, yeah, and some of them are doubles as well. So um, mm. it cost a pr- it cost it cost quite a lot of money to to to, to move it, but uh, not as much as they're worth, and it was worth every cent. To um, it's crazy because I can listen to these things on Spotify whenever I want, you know, all of them. But yeah. and I'm not, but I'm not excited about that. You know, um, but I am excited to have them in my hand and then put them on and and put the needle on and listen to them. Like that's exciting to me. You know, I and I don't know. I don't know what the difference is, but I, I feel like there's a difference. We just did a big thing about vinyl last night and our favorite records. What's the first one you're going to listen to? You gotta gotta fess up. Um, probably my copy of Telecon by Gary Newman. Um, that's Ooh. one of my absolute favorite records. I love Gary Newman. Um. And uh, I also have a Mezzy Star record in there, which I really like. So nice. I might put that on and uh, followed by, I don't know, Broken Social Scene. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how the night takes me. All right. Well, update us with uh, your records. Thank you for sharing the good news. It is Good News Tuesday ish here on the shift. Sir Christopher Gilbert, uh, part of the show for a long time, now lives in Tokyo, joins us through the power of the interwebs from there. Where are we going today with the world news? Um, well, why don't we start where I am, which is Japan? Um, yes. Yeah. Do you want to start with butts or frogs? I like frogs. Okay, let's start with frogs. Um, The headline is, Frogs Trick the Fukuoka Police into a Fake Puppy Rescue. The what police? Um, Didn't know frog. The Fukuoka Police. Fukuoka is a large city in the southern or westernmost island of Kyushu. So if you go, it's kind of on the same island as Nagasaki. Um, It's a really lovely town. I always wondered how it was pronounced. There you go. Yeah, Fukuoka is is the is my pronunciation. F U K U O K A for the census. And um, wow, we should change are you okay to Fukuoka? <laughs> uh, yeah, Fukuoka. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, um, around midday on the twenty fourth of February, a woman in her twenties was visiting Senju Kanodo, a Kanondo, a temple dedicated to the goddess of mercy that's been nestled between the Sai River and the foot of Mount Kubote in Busan, Fukuoka Prefecture. While enjoying the serenity of the area, she heard the faint sound of a dog barking. This is the sound she heard. Ready to play that clip? Indeed. Obviously a dog barking. Clearly. Sounds stretchy. Ooh. Yeah, doesn't that sound like a dog bark? You look repulsed, Maddie. It sounds like a stretchy. dog that's inside... No, maybe that's a dog inside of a giant frog. Whom amongst us has not walked through a rice field at midnight and joined the serenity and heard the faint sound of a dog barking just like that? Yeah, I know that's true. I, mean, I have. I, yeah. I know that when I think mm. back to my uh, rice field walks at night... Yes. That's exactly what I was yeah. thinking. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Classic sound. It led her mm-hmm. to the crack in the mountain wall behind the temple's worship hall where spring water dripped out. She was unable to see anything but could distinctly hear sounds like grrr and yip yip and woof, featuring that an animal was trapped. Sorry, fearing that an animal was trapped, she placed a call to Japan's emergency number. Two officers rushed to the scene, searched around, but were unable to find any dog. However, all three could distinctly hear a dog barking somewhere very close. Just then, a local man in his 50s passed by and told the matter-of-factly, it's probably barking frogs. <laughs> and it was. It was barking frogs. So this was a, was this a local who, who reported this dog? Or did I miss that um, part? I, I, 
I assume it was a local. Uh, it was um, she was visiting Senju Kanondo, the temple, so she might be from somewhere in the area, but uh, she uh, might not be hyper local, but more like you know vaguely local. Um, mm. It is a creature called a Targo frog, also known as Targo's brown frog, after the Japanese zoologist Katsuya Targo, which is endemic to Japan and uh, is famous for making a barking, growling sound. And I, I think I think I. I it is hard to hear at first, but um, I kind of uh, enhanced the audio. So if if we listen to the, my enhanced oh, audio, uh, that second uh-uh. clip, you might be you might be able to hear it a bit better. <laughs> oh, there it is. Oh, there it is. Ah, that makes okay, sense. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, there you go. I just yeah. want to pet him. A good boy. Yeah, yeah. What a good frog. Um, so that's Japan's call that a, frog. Would you call it a froge then? If you're going to be, um, I, I would call that a German, a, a German ship toad. Oh, nice! <laughs> I like it. I nice. like it. Well, <laughs> no, we I just put. Yeah. Uh, or a frogo. I, I tell you, a frogo is really a piece good. Of, frogo. Frogo. Yeah, like a doggo. Like a doggo. Right? Oh, My kids call dogs doges and yeah, frogos. Yeah. Froges. I think. Uh, <laughs> I think frogo is actually a Cadbury. A Cadbury chocolate. Do you have frogos in Canada? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, do you know I think we have frogos in New Zealand. F R O G G O, I think. And uh, there, there's like a little Cadbury chocolate, and uh, it's just shaped like a frog, and that's the end of that story. Oh, um, yeah. It is, this is real, and yeah, it is only available chocolate. in Australia. Uh, excuse, excuse me. <clears throat> you want to. Wow. Put hey, I'm just reading what I'm seeing off of the uh, the Wikipedia page. Yeah, well, I will go in and correct just, it gladly. You don't just oh, wait, read everything oh. you read on the internet on the radio, Ryan. That's how you end up talking uh, okay. about frogs and you stuff. You are completely right. However, I have just read further down than the headline that it has oh. been extended into other markets. It originated in Australia. There we go. See, those details matter. So you offended him uh, now. I feel ashamed of myself. I'm so sorry, Chris. Um, I'll move on and just inform you that the, the sound that frogs make in Japanese is not rip it, rip it, or uh, whatever the, they make in English. Um, it's kero kero is the sound that frogs make. Frogs go kero kero in Japanese. I didn't know frogs Dogs, however... Dogs, however, go one one. Cats go nya nya. Horses go hihin. I've put a list in front of me if you can't tell. That makes sense. Um, cows go mo mo. Um, this might be one of my favorite roosters. You know, the classic cockadoodle do. It's uh, uh, cockacocko. That kind of makes sense, though. That's a hell of a lot better than the frogs. <laughs> this is the looniest thing I've ever done in my life. What do pigeons, what's Elephants. the noise pigeons make in uh, Japanese? Do we have that one? Um, no, but I can imagine it's peach, peach. Um, <laughs> mip, mip. I don't know. <laughs> mip, mip. That doesn't sound like... Elephants. Elephants. Where, oh, where was it? I've lost it. Elephants. This is a good one. Where are you? Here it is. It goes... Poun! <laughs> Poun! That's the sound that a frog a elephant makes in Japanese. Is that one its um, steps or its trunk? Uh, I think this is probably its trunk. Uh, okay. uh, yeah. And <laughs> flies go boon. So if you're a fly, is it a business? Fly? Flies go boon. Boon. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I like that. I, all of them make Animal sense noises. except for the frog one. And that's how we got there. Man. <laughs> get up, get up. No, it makes total sense. What are you talking about? For also, get up, 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 get up. I don't know. Yeah. The cow goes, Maybe moo. It. It's animal noises with Shane Hewitt. <laughs> mo, mo. What did you talk about at work last night? Well, we talked about uh, conspiracies in the dairy uh, sector around milk and uh, frogs. Just, just play just a clip of Chris making a whole bunch of animal noises in a row. That's what we That's the about. podcast, by the That's way. The this ship. is this is how beautiful the podcast is. The podcast will be nothing more today. Forget about talking about star seeds and universes. Let some. Um, the old podcast will only be Chris making animal sounds in Japanese. It's just in, in a 43-minute loop. <laughs> Wolves go, wow. 
Wow. Wow. That's going to be like the shift speak and spell, you know? It is. Awesome. That's a great Yeah, we can make a children's DVD here. Yeah, it's educational. All right, where are we going next here, Chris? Okay, well, let's get let's get out of Japan. I've I've got a thing I want to get off my chest. You guys talked about the Sex Doctor Seuss books tonight, right? Already? Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and they're no longer being published because of racist content. Um, and so I had that on my list of things to talk about, and I want to talk about it because you guys covered it. And but the thing I do want to say about it very quickly is that um, well, well very quickly, what, what did you guys make of it? I know as an are you okay? Did you care? Did you not care? Yeah, well, we uh, we care because we love Dr. Seuss, but I think the the determination we made was if you're going to have if you're going to like change everything, they didn't change anything. They just shelved those ones. They did their own research. They said this is not a fit, and here's a bit of a lens into the past. We're putting it away. We're moving on. I like that. Okay, okay. So when I th- this came across my radar today while I was putting this stuff together, as, as you know, as a lot of stuff does, and I cannot tell you the amount of absolute rubbish I have to sift, sift through that is disguising itself as news. And this is one of these stories. And I'm going to lead that. This is leading somewhere, but hmm. just that is just you know we've talked about before at the end of a story where you have the oh, that's right, Sharon. Oh, what an amazing story. Oh, how about that? You have that kind of banter. Yeah, you know, like yes, that's those right, kinds of stories. Oh well, wouldn't, wouldn't you know it? Like that that sort of stuff. And it's like, well, thanks for that report, Steve. You know, like this really passive aggressive stuff. Um, and I, I think anytime you get that at the end of a story, that is like a disclaimer saying you should not care about this. This is nothing to do with anything. You can live your life like normal. Um, for the listeners, I've worked in news. Most news is not real. Most news just is just stuff that, you know, you have to fill airtime every day. And so the Dr. Seuss story is kind of an example of that. Another example is this next one. So this is kind of like an anti-story. Um, this is, uh, I want to do the, Maddie, the co-workers at the restaurant, the sisters one. Um, so two co-workers um, at a restaurant, uh, they worked together for a long time. Uh, they turned out to be sisters. Oh, my God. Um, Maddie, could you play the, the second clip, the longer one, please? Two women working at the same restaurant discover they're actually long-lost sisters. Cassandra Madison and Julia Tenetti began working together at the Russian Lady in New Haven back in 2013. They bonded instantly. They both had Dominican Republican tattoos. Both were adopted and raised by single moms. Although they looked alike, errors in Julia's adoption papers made being related seem impossible. That is, until they took a DNA test and discovered they were biological sisters. Can you imagine? They were the only two put up for adoption. They worked together, Lee, since 2013. What a story. Oh, my God. It's just amazing. Oh, it's outrageous. Look at hey, uh, boy, blood's were... thicker than water. Isn't that what they say? That's right. They were really meant to be. <laughs> In case you didn't catch oh. that, here's one more cliche to wrap up that story. Oh, oh yeah, you know... Two sisters in the bush is worth one in the pantry, but crisscross applesauce, if you judge the book by his cover, then Bob's your uncle. Those sisters are finally going to teach their grandmother how to suck eggs. I've always said when it comes to family, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. But I guess last year, hindsight really was 2020, but that rich, and I tell you, man, if you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. Little strokes fell great oaks. Uh, the sisters are always greener on the other side of the uh, the family. Uh, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. What a great story. And speaking of blood, Sharon, how's the weather? Let's <laughs> <laughs> start our own news, news network, man. There you go. <sighs> it's it's just, you can tell they're dying inside. You yep. know, and... <laughs> it, you you just you just hear them be like wow what a great story isn't that amazing dan like oh just they were sisters the whole uh, wow and it's like these people must hate themselves well surely. what i kind of went to is like say because you don't always like your coworkers, right i'm not saying anything about ryan or shane or, or yourself but you don't always you, know, you don't always left field. Like, you don't you always don't like the people well you, sometimes you don't like the people that you work with it's bound to happen when you have, have sure. many jobs over the course of a lifetime what if you found out that, that you, you just work with somebody you hate 
or you know, hate's a strong word, but you you work with somebody you don't like, and then you find out that they're your brother or your sister or whatever. Mm. What, what are you gonna oh, do? What are you I gonna do? Do what you did when you were coworkers. You, all right, fine, I'll put up with this, but I'm only gonna see you when I have to. Exactly. Well, you clearly oh. call mom and tell on your brother. That's what you do. <laughs> or the yeah, tattle. But do you want to be the tattletale, or do you let them tattle first? Well, it depends. I mean, if you've never well, met well, mom and this is all new, you got to get to mom first and skew the story <laughs> a little bit. Oh, oh you got to control the story against your new sibling. That's right. Politics, man. Hey, it's all a game. You got to play the game, or else you're out. I think you're forgetting what it's like. We've been out of the office for so long. You know what well, what it's like. I mean, I have worked with people that eight years ago that I hate to this day. You know, I haven't seen them in eight years, and I hate them that much that I still just sit there sometimes, just fuming with my hatred about them. And if that person turned out to me be my brother, I would have to have a good long hard look in the mirror and and decide if I should hate myself or not. You know, mm-hmm. that's fair. <laughs> um, well. Uh, thank you for coming and uh, sitting on our couch today, Chris, <laughs> and sharing all that. <laughs> That'll be $180. <laughs> hey, you're welcome. Anytime, guys. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.